Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed and you're here listening to some of the conversations that myself and my co-host Dr. Emily Canedo, Jessica Rowley and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation and psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions for consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes and if you'd like any further information or are interested in being a guest, please feel free to let us know or get in touch via email or Twitter. Today, we are so grateful to have with us Dr. Mel Collier-Meek. Dr. Collier-Meek is a licensed psychologist and board-certified behaviour analyst. Dr. Collier-Meek received the Leitner-Wittemer Award from the American Psychological Association for her early career scholarship and is an elected member of the Society for the Study of School Psychology. She is currently a professor of school psychology at Teachers College, Columbia University. She also serves as an associate editor for school psychology and provides reviews to several journals for which she had been honoured with twice as reviewer of the year. Mel's research interests include implementation science and conducts applied school-based implementation research. She has specific expertise in intervention fidelity and teacher consultation. Dr. Collier Meek is presently the co-principal investigator with Dr. Lisa Sinetti for the Project Prime 2. This stands for Planning Realistic Intervention, Implementation and Maintenance by Educators. It is a five-year efficacy trial to evaluate support for elementary teachers' implementation of function-based interventions. In addition, she consults with schools to support educators, school teams and administrators to facilitate sustained effective practices that improve student outcomes. Most importantly, she is the mother of two elementary school-aged children. We really hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Hi Mel, it's so lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, I'm delighted. Yeah, we're so excited to talk to you about kind of all the work you've done and your recent paper. We kind of want to start with just hearing a little bit about you and your journey to being a school psychologist. Of course. Well, so I think it's one of those things when you look back at all, you can see everything building along in a in a clear progression, but it I have to say, it didn't quite feel that way at the time. So I want to demystify a planful journey. So I was drawn to work with schools because of their potential to serve communities. Um, I saw them as um, service providers, um, where in communities that had limited resources or students who didn't have access us to mental health or behavioral health supports, there were always schools. And so in undergrad, I studied family, um, family studies and human development. I did an honors thesis on family school communication in military schools, where I saw, you know, how policy about kind of, you know, curriculum and others impacted students and these families and the schools that were supporting students who moved often. So when after undergrad, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do next. Um, And so I applied to get my EDS, our master's program, participate in master's program. And I really saw myself going to do applied work and jump right in to practice because I I wanted to make a difference, right? And I saw applied work as kind of that front and center. And so 
without much kind of planfulness, I applied to the UConn program at the University of Connecticut. And I was just lucky to be paired with Dr. Lisa Sinetti, who, you know, now 10 years later is a friend and a colleague and a mentor. And so when I was there and working with alongside her in her research and and diving into classes, I really saw that there was so much we needed to unpack around the research to practice gap. We needed to really know how to better support educators that we were working with. And I saw kind of how applied research really felt so relevant and useful um, and connected to practice. And so I applied for the PhD program, um, luckily was accepted and kind of have continued that journey ever since and kind of worked alongside folks that I met there, um, luckily, for years to come. I also think that the academic journey doesn't end after your PhD program. I've been very lucky to been in faculty roles where I've been kind of embedded into new communities. And I've had other opportunities like working with colleagues to plan a conference where the working and planning and learning together has significantly shaped how I view the field and my responsibility as a scholar. And so I see that kind of ongoing academic journey. I really do feel like I'm in the middle of my academic journey. You know, being a parent has shaped my academic journey. And so, again, I think I'm in the messy middle um, and it's delightful to look back and see a clear through line. But I also, um, you know, really want to be thoughtful and planful that I'm kind of continuing that journey today. It's so nice to kind of hear that you you kind of you're talking about your academic journey and that it's still ongoing. So I've just finished my doctorate. So I'm like, yeah, I definitely feel like I still want to continue and still finding ways to it's really nice to hear and um, you spoke a little bit about uh family and school communication and I'm just wondering if you you know you pick up a little bit on your interest on that because I think also in the paper that we'll talk about later you speak about conjoint consultations yeah absolutely um so I think aligned with my sense that schools are there to kind of support communities support families you know I, I threw my you know, honors undergrad thesis through um, the LEND program, which was Leadership in Education and Neurodevelopmental Disabilities, which was a program where we learned from people with disabilities, their families, and their experiences of, and often very poor experiences of working with um, community and healthcare providers and schools. I think that the importance of there being a collaborative relationship, the importance of honoring where families are, um, the the responsibility of families, can, or the you know families being the center point of children's education, um, has always kind of driven my work. I think. Also, as a parent who of an elementary school child who comes home with lots of files and forms and who kind of in, maybe I thought I would be better about always making time for all the things that I think her school would like us to do and that we maybe should be doing. I just really have a lot of empathy for families where they're at and really see the benefit of that being a positive and supportive relationship, but I can also understand where there's friction. And I really feel that it's school's responsibility to figure out how to serve families better um, rather than the other way around. And I think that I can see that in my work. Just speaking about your 
your work, Mel. You know, you've written such a huge amount of really interesting stuff on implementation science and kind of literacy around like being literate and being engaged and understanding about what implementation science might mean in in school psychology or in, you know we might say in in the UK educational psychology and one thing we might be interested in is a sort of psychological theory or models or frameworks or ideas that might help school psychology practitioners or educational psychology practitioners in trying to make sense of implementation processes. Are there kind of like key messages or key points that you feel like looking back over the work that you've done so far, you you really feel are quite central core messages that you're drawing out about the psychological theory element of implementation processes? That's such a thoughtful question. And I, I think I can answer that in kind of a few ways. The first being, I think when we think about implementation, we need to come from the perspective of what's reasonable or realistic for us as humans, right? So we have kind of all set personal goals or said, I'm going to run this much, or I'm going to, I'm not going to have that snack after bed, you know, after the kid's bedtime. And we've all failed at those things, right? And those have been things that maybe were really important to us, but making them happen consistently has been very challenging. And we can see that on a population level. Um, And so I think I try to move towards thinking about supporting consultees from the perspective of understanding that this is this is challenging. It's challenging for me in my life um, to adopt a new routine, to put a new practice in place. And when we talk to teachers, you know, when they're when we're asking them to adopt something new, it's often in the context of something that's been very challenging for them. They've tried to work with the child. They've, they're feeling like they're experiencing failure or frustration, or they don't know what to do at that moment. And, and that's a hard moment to be our best selves, right? Our calm, responsive, thoughtful, like I'm going to implement the plan. And so I think it's really important that we come to the perspective of supporting people's implementation from the very human sense of like, this is hard and this is tricky. And this is something that we need to be planful to realistically support and kind of give that as much space as maybe selecting the right student intervention, right? So how do we acknowledge that this is challenging? It's challenging for us. This is a specifically um, complex situation, right? This They're coming to us from frustration, from things not working out for a while. And so how can I kind of understand that as a context and be really supportive and thoughtful about how we can help them to sustain a new behavior in that moment? So I think that that kind of first framework for all of us can be around understanding that this is hard, understanding that we have this, this isn't a teacher who's being non-compliant. This isn't a teacher who's not trying their best, but really come from the perspective, this is challenging. Beyond that, I think implementation science does a really good job. And I think better than we do typically when we think about schools by unpacking kind of the multi-layer of influences that can impact an individual who's trying to implement a practice. So implementation science in general does a really nice job of articulating the varied levels, the varied phases, 
that impacts someone's ability to adopt and implement a practice. That very specific consultee behavior is really surrounded by layers of influences like a school climate, like the amount of training they've got, the preparation, the support. Um, And so I think that that is a big thing that we can learn from that field and use in our lens as consultants. I love that emphasis on, you know, that thing about being your best self. And I think the compassion that we might need to have for ourselves as consultants for cons- and for consultees to feel compassion towards themselves, but equally that relationship between the child or young person and the teacher or whomever the, the consultee is. There's something very compassionate about what you're describing that recognises the humanity in people and tries to work with that rather than acting as if that's not that's not quite there. Absolutely. And I think that that, you know, I think within education, we can feel like, you know, I gave them this checklist or this is best practice or it's research based. Like, why aren't they just jumping and adopting it? But I think that's really unrealistic. That's that's something in a very small vacuum. Right. And we know mm-hmm. from people behavior broadly that that really isn't enough to change behavior. And and is unrealistic to kind of think that that would um, be sufficient in changing someone's behavior. So coming from a more, maybe I, I love that framing of a compassionate lens, a realistic lens of how, mm-hmm. how can we help folks to do something hard, which is, be, you know, behavior change, right? How can we support them to engage in those behaviors um, long-term over time? Yeah. In the, um, work that you've done and I suppose looking at some of the research I think it's not uncommon for people to think when you get to implementing that kind of plan phase of consultation well you need to check on the training and how capable and able the consultee might and so there's a kind of emphasis understandably on training but some of your work has kind of drawn attention to other factors that could maybe be in play. And I wonder if you'd speak a little bit about things like performance feedback, for example, and the idea that maybe training a consultee alone in a particular intervention may be part of ensuring something different happens for the client, but maybe might not be sufficient just by itself. Yeah, so I think of training as necessary, but insufficient alone. And again, for some folks, you know, getting trained can be enough. But for the majority of folks, just knowing the right thing to do doesn't necessarily translate into doing the right thing consistently across time. Um, And I I really credit um, Lisa Sinetti, who's been a mentor and a colleague for really, you know, really unpacking the importance of planning within, you know, planning and modifications, and then kind of looking at, different types of implementation supports, things like role play, things like motivational interviewing, things like performance feedback, and really looking at a wide variety of types of supports for consultees and figuring out what can be most effective for folks. Absolutely, performance feedback is one of our most widely researched um, implementation supports. And certainly getting feedback and the opportunity for practice and um, getting support and encouragement and problem solving can be highly effective. We also, when we did a study, must have been almost 15 years ago, where we 
um, helped school practitioners deliver performance feedback to their colleagues, they they struggled with it. We had to give performance feedback to the people who were delivering performance feedback. And because kind of, first of all, it's a new skill to deliver effective performance feedback. Two, because, you know, they weren't necessarily comfortable with that role. And so I think while performance feedback has been very, very well researched and is a very effective strategy in a lot of places, we I also don't know if it has uh, the application to practice will be challenging because you know, giving feedback in your to your colleagues within school environments isn't always a comfortable thing. And part of partly we need to push through that, but also partly it can't be the only strategy that we rely on, right? We can't just train someone and then come back six months later and say you're not doing it, right? That's not really realistic. I did my dissertation on performance feedback of parents delivering um, interventions in the home setting. And basically it didn't work, right? We found that the parents, I mean, I think we can unpack all of that, but you know, parents didn't need to know what they were and weren't doing. They needed help figuring out how they were going to make that happen around the routines that they had, right? So just getting the feedback that was like you're you're not quite there yet. It wasn't what they needed. And I think looking back. And so um, and as a parent now, I can imagine getting a, a checklist from an eager grad student wouldn't have quite um, been exactly what I was hoping for. So I think that understanding what do people need to be successful or what might be the reasons that this consultee is struggling and how can I select the right implementation support to help them through those next steps. Um, and what makes sense for our context um, can be a, a more appropriate way of supporting them over time. It's really interesting. It was making me think about that point about um, how uncomfortable it might be to give your colleagues feedback, that idea of a kind of a school climate or a school culture where there is an emphasis on collegiality. So you don't really have a sort of a, a norm around this is how we do things in this school. And I was just wondering about whether then was the risk that the feedback came across as maybe, I don't know, critical, or there was some sense that you were violating that norm of, well, this isn't how we are with one another. We're supposed to be supportive, kind, reassuring, emphasizing all of the positive, or indeed agreeing that this is impossible. There's nothing we can do about this. Was that cultural issue part of perhaps why it had been maybe more challenging at times? Yeah, I think there's two things within that that we can think about because one is absolutely performance feedback. If you look at just the face of it, it can look like a really kind of supervisor, supervisee type of strategy when I don't think it needs to be right. Like it can be a conversation around like these are the things I see you doing all the time and good on you. Like that's challenging to make happen. These are the other parts of the plan and let's figure out how we can help make those happen more regularly. Like that is a different. So I think we need to train people to use performance feedback from a more collaborative framework. The other piece of that is you're absolutely right. Like I think that within the kind of culture of schools, people really don't want to feel like a supervisor with their colleagues. Right. And that can be challenging. And part and we need to kind of think about that in two ways, I think. One is. I will kind of highlight one of my favorite articles of the last few years by Liz McKenney about this 
about um, uh, white women within education and kind of thinking about how, you know, the majority of educators in the U.S. are white women. And we tend to not we tend to avoid uncomfortable conversations and in doing so, maybe we're not having the important conversations that we need to be having. And maybe it's easier to talk about that kid instead of to talk about my colleagues teaching. And so in some ways, I think we do need to push back and have those hard conversations like performance feedback, where we say like, you know, so-and-so is not improving, but I don't know if they're really getting what they need on a consistent basis. And we need to push through and have those hard conversations because that kind of keeps the, you know, keeps the adult responsibility right in a central place. So I think we need to, I think there's two pieces of this. One is we need to figure out how to have performance feedback like conversations from a problem solving, compassionate lens, but we can't let ourselves off the hook from having these hard conversations because when we do, it perpetuates that responsibility on our students and it avoids us kind of taking responsibility for what the educators in the building are doing. I think that's such a good point, just in generally, just about um, the difficulties of having the difficult conversations and, you know, kind of that wanting to be perceived as nice and wanting to get along with your colleagues, like you're saying, Emma, about, you know, the culture within the school environment. So I thought that was quite interesting. And I know you also touched on that in your paper. Wondering, actually, what the role of the consultant is in that because if the if it's collegial and the school other school colleagues are performance feedbacking their colleagues how do kind of the school consultants or school psychologists work with that yeah so if there isn't so you're saying if there isn't already a culture of that sort of conversation happening yeah I I mean I think that I was just talking to Uh, my grad students in consultation class where they are saying like, okay, this all sounds really good, but there's so many things that I want to do differently in the setting that I'm working with, or I want to make change in so many different ways. Like how, how do I reasonably move my way through this? And I think a lot of that is about kind of doing consultation on the systems level where you're coming in with an analysis, like a needs analysis or needs identification, really understanding the lay of the land um, and understanding how the system works and then kind of being strategic about this is my first goal, this is my second goal. Um, And so, you know, to go back to your example, I mean, I think that, you know, you, you might take a lay of the land and say, wow, we're really avoiding having these tough conversations that we need to have. And And depending on your school community, you might kind of move in in different ways. Like maybe that's doing some kind of school-wide book reads about kind of the culture of niceness or how do we have kind of radical candor comes up as an example, a framework around, Mm. you know, being honest, but also being kind at the same time. So there are resources in the business world or about school world that we can kind of unpack as a broader community to encourage each other to have more direct and kind conversations. Um, Or it might mean that you're working with the administrator to Mm. understand what their priorities are and kind of unpacking and having those kind of specific and strategic conversations. So I think how you move 
to address that goal at the systems level depends on what you've done during the needs identification of your broader piece. But I think that there's definitely different ways that you can attack that issue. And I think it's really thoughtful for that to be an area of strategic system-wide support. Mm -hmm. It's making me think, Sarah, about sort of frameworks like video interaction guidance or video enhanced reflective practice and the emphasis on kind of not what you're not doing, Bill, and whether there is some kind of ways in which that could be developed and borrowed, uh, depending on, obviously, some schools do have a kind of a, a culture of openness and kind of maybe lesson study. They've got teachers paired up with one another. There's more familiarity with the idea of that worked really well, maybe not so much this, let's have a think about maybe that cultural difference maybe as part of Mel, you mentioned something there before I come back to the point I was going to make about use the word administrator. And I think this might be one of the areas of sort of cultural difference between the states and possibly, say, our context in the UK. Would you just say very briefly, when you say administrator, you're not necessarily meaning somebody who does administrative tasks? Yeah, of course. Thank you. The role of the administrator. So I'm thinking about the principal or the assistant principal or the district, you know, district leadership. So I'm thinking about leadership kind of typically defined, but I would also recommend that when you're walking into a system and doing your kind of needs identification that you're thinking about who's who's leadership on paper, who's leadership kind of informally, right? So whose opinions are valued, who 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 shares their perspectives and is well heard. So thinking about leadership on paper and then leadership as, you know, at, you know broadly in the system, mm-hmm. um, informal leadership can be useful as you walk into a system. And I think that idea about who you're walking in to um, and who has kind of authority in the system and who may have power within the system feel really important parts of that idea of consulting on different levels and, and how you might do that. I guess one thing that's making me think about is the importance of, you know, we do a lot of, say, training on assessing children and young people's needs across a, a variety of different dimensions, but how well are we equipping practitioners in well how do you assess culture how do you assess leader how do you assess the kind of well on paper the structure looks like x but actually in terms of why and I go into the staff room and I kind of see what's how I go to a maybe a staff meeting in the school I maybe get a slightly different or more nuanced sense about where leadership may actually lie yeah I I think that's a great point that we we are very thoughtful about our training around kids, but our training around unpacking systems is much more vague um, and puts practitioners in a little bit of a hard spot when they're trying to take on that that responsibility. I will say that uh, uh, Aaron Lyons out of the University of Washington has a great um, resource on implementation climate, like a suite of measures that has prompted me to think about different dimensions. Things like resource mapping um, can be really useful in understanding where things are and why they might be the way they are. Um, And so I think that consultants have the broader skills. It's giving them the opportunity to practice on the systems level um, that can be so important. No, it's it's such a good point. The other thing I wanted to just 
sort of ask for your thoughts on really was the point about performance feedback and how hard or how easy it might be. One dimension I was thinking about when you were talking is if as a consultee you're feeling profoundly frustrated and upset and thinking this is not my best self as a teacher, but depending on what the issue is, like if, for example, it's being perceived as this child lacks a kind of a, a skill or an and I, I can teach that, I can I can support them. You mentioned the word non-compliance versus I was thinking then about children, young people who are perceived to be difficult, challenging, non-compliant, won't do what they're asked to do. It was making me wonder about whether performance feedback or indeed the kind of whole consultation in a way goes back on some level to the feelings that that consultee has about the situation that they find themselves in, the feelings they have about their own competence, their own ability. And yeah, whether you'd have any thoughts on the idea that perhaps how they've come to formulate or understand what's going on may have a bit of an implication for how easy or difficult they may find to take up some of the different phases of of consultation. I think that's really thoughtful. And it it hasn't been, that is something that I'm very interested in unpacking more. I think that um, how I've been kind of trained to do consultation is be very kind of um, job and implementation focused. But I, I think we can see how much, like, it's very clear that how you're, what you're feeling around feelings of success can impact your kind of implementation, your engagement. And I think that we've made kind of a divide that needs to be overcome. I think what we see, uh, Lisa Sinetti and our, our data that we see that people tend to implement strategies that they can do well with high quality, right? So we see that in the data that, you know, if I'm nervous about doing something or whether I can do that, I'm less likely to do it than if I know I can kind of hit it out of the park, that I'm going to do that more regularly because we're doing things that we feel we can do well. And so what does that mean for training and preparation around how how we get consultees to a place where they can feel confident about a new practice so that they can do it during challenging moments? Um, and so I think that understanding what people bring to consultation, how they're feeling about the situation um, is certainly important. I also think I was just working with a student last week who was meeting with a consultee for the first time and was kind of daunted by how much the challenging situation was impacting, you know, they weren't sleeping well, they were so frustrated, they were kind of questioning themselves as a teacher. And so helping that new consultant to be able to acknowledge that the teacher's frustrated and also to kind of bring them back to, to not spinning, but better understanding the problem so that we can support them. Right. So how do you, how do you balance not being their therapist with also being an effective consultant? Um, And I think that can be a challenging, a challenging line when you're starting as a new consultant and with practice, you can kind of understand but I don't know if that's something that we're necessarily explicitly teaching and I'm thinking a lot about. I'm just wondering, Zara, because you're very close to your training phase about whether you'd recognize some of what Mel was saying there about that kind of how do you balance up maybe a teacher who's, whose self is really impacted by the difficulty that they're having 
and you know needing to kind of really acknowledge and help them process that but not getting so drawn into something that actually isn't consultation it's a as a different type of relationship is that something that you know you'd recognize as a as an early career practitioner yeah i think it's definitely something i've always kind of grappled with in terms of like blurring the lines because i also i used to be a school counselor before i trained to be an educational psychologist so I am always like, oh no, have I gone too much into like supporting their emotional well-being? But I also think like giving yourself a break in that sense as an early career consultant and, you know, supporting the teacher or the consultee to uh, maybe contain their emotions and kind of support them in that sense will also help them show up a little bit more as their best self, as we were saying. Um, and that sometimes supporting their emotional well-being will free up some space in their mind to actually think mm. about what's actually going mm. for the client or the young person. And for sure. Yeah. It's just making me think about how shaming it may be to say, I'm struggling or I don't quite know what to do and feeling like I can't do all of this. That maybe that those feelings are potentially very much needing to be thought about first before you start moving into to very much else because otherwise without somebody actually acknowledging you're having a feeling and I, I think it links to that idea about kind of the emphasis in the UK around sort of the development of emotional competence in babies young children children adolescents and kind of lessons even that are taught and you know I know in the, the state you've got various programs like that and you know Mark Greenberg's work and others but there seems to be less emphasis on teachers' emotional, does even having emotions in a school or other school staff having feelings and how important those feelings might be as part of the consultation process. Right. And I think it can be, you know, we need to kind of hear that, acknowledge, validate, and then move forward, right? I think sometimes folks are nervous that if they get stuck, if they kind of give space to those feelings, then they're going to be stuck, right? They're going to be being a therapist. They're not going to kind of get to the student issue. And so it's important and a kind of an advanced skill to know that you can kind of hear those feelings, validate those feelings, you know, acknowledge the frustration, and then also kind of move forward, right? To to understand like, okay, how can I help this this situation be different? Because I think that sometimes and again, this is my what my students are reporting as they kind of embark on their first cases that they're really surprised by how frustrated their consultees are. And I try to remind them that, you know, for many of the consultees, they've been asking for help for the situation for a while, right? They're frustrated. They're in the school day with the student for, you know, for a long time every day, they're struggling with this situation and they've been asking their their principal for help. They've been asking their school counselor for help. And finally, someone's sitting down with them. And it makes sense that that frustration, you know, that they're like, and then this happened and then this happened. And they're like, can you believe it? And the skill that is hearing that and under, and being compassionate in that moment while also saying like, okay, help me understand what's what's going on with the student so we can kind of help you and them have something different happening in a few weeks. Um, mm-hmm. that, that That's a tricky skill. I, one other thing I wanted to ask you before we, we moved on a little bit from the ideas around implementation was this idea of de-implementation. 
I, a very long time ago, having been introduced to work by people like Vivienne Robinson or Helen Timperley about, you know, workload and kind of how culture can have quite unintended consequences for effectiveness. And that point about collegiality and the school culture and their work in identifying that when you have schools that have high levels of collegiality and high levels of autonomy, so what goes on in my classroom is within reason is my business, I'm an autonomous teacher teaching, that actually it can be very difficult for uh, a school to stop doing an intervention that isn't working. And instead, what you know, some of their work found was like a proliferation of interventions all around the same area. It was around raising achievement in, in one set of research that they did. But instead of reviewing, actually, we've got seven interventions that are all about this particular issue, we probably need to stop doing some of them or focus our attention. They just kept going because, A, you couldn't really say to other people, this isn't quite working as is. And people were quite autonomous. And I was just this idea about stopping doing what doesn't work and as much as trying to get people to start doing things maybe that could work. I was just wondering if you've encountered that idea of needing to sort of work on de-implementation, particularly maybe when school leaders really value a particular project or are really keen on implementing something, and particularly when resources are quite scarce, and maybe they've started something and they've kind of put a lot into us. Yeah, just any thoughts that you might have on both the idea of, of implementation and de-implementation. Sure, absolutely. And I think, absolutely, this needs to be a part of what we're thinking about as consultants, as we ask people to do something extra or something new. You know, what what can we say and what, how can we help them to take things off their plate, right? So that it's feasible for them to con- continue their work. So at the systems level, I think that things like resource mapping and having conversations about initiative overload or initiative fatigue can be really useful for these conversations. Consultants have such good questioning skills that this can be a place for you to bring those skills around like, well, how is that working? And like, wow, it looks like we've got a lot of things for this issue, but nothing for this issue, right? Like those consultation skills of questioning and helping people to understand for themselves the issue can be really effective when trying to push for change there. I think when we have so many initiatives, it can be confusing to folks and teachers when we say like, well, we came back in six months and you weren't doing that thing. Well, why why do you care about this thing? But this other thing that you told me about six months ago, we're just supposed to stop doing, but not really. Um, So I, I think the importance of talking about like, why, what do we have going on as a school system? What can we pull back on? And um, how can we talk about de-implementation in a way that is meaningful about kind of create, you know, decreasing stress, making sure we're all on, on the same page, making sure that we have reasonable expectations for ourselves. We can have those conversations and as consultants who are great at questioning and great at kind of thinking planfully about intervention and support, we're very well equipped to do that. 
And I think that should be kind of a part of our work along with kind of that individual level of consultation. We should always be looking up at the systems level and seeing kind of how our skills can be brought to bear. And so I think kind of planfully having the conversation around de-implementation um, needs to be a part of what, what we can bring to schools. Which also, I suppose, circles us back to that idea about leadership and who your kind of key points of contact are and how you're kind of interacting with the system at the different levels that you know you need to be engaging with. So I suppose I I could go on and never stop asking Mel a whole heap of questions about uh, implementation and de-implementation, but I am really conscious that there has been a paper that Mel was recently involved in on reflections on consultation that was just to start us off, I'm wondering about whether it would be helpful to say a little bit about the, the background or what led up to the decision to, to sort of reflect on consultation through a, a discrete lens in particular. Sure. First, thank you. This was a labor of love to write. And so I'm, I'm so glad that other, that folks are reading it. You never know when you send something out. So Within, um, you know, after kind of within the states with the Black Lives Matter movement, which gained speed within during COVID, I was learn. We were all as a community learning and growing from colleagues, and I think within that space, two particular things really impacted me and encouraged us to write this paper. One um, was the decolonizing psychology conference that was put on by my colleague, Perna Aurora, at Teachers College and is available on via video. Um, and I remember a talk by Amanda Sullivan talking about deconstructing um, and decolonizing scholarship that profoundly led into this. The other piece that I will um, mention is the, um, I was lucky to work with some colleagues like Sherry Proctor, Stacey in January, and many others to um, prepare a conference for early career school psychology faculty, where we really thought about unpacking the kind of hidden assumptions around you know, who gets to go to this conference? What are we training them in? And we really did a lot of work as a committee to think about responsibilities and scholarship and what is scholarship and what is our responsibilities. And both of those service and kind of um, learning opportunities really impacted me significantly in that it pushed me to ask myself why as a white lady, why I felt so comfortable talking about social justice within my teaching or within my service, but I hadn't kind of directly confronted that within my research. So while social justice was the reason I cared about my research area, right, I wanted to make sure as educators, we were being held to account for the interventions and supports that we were delivering to students, right? That that there was accountability, not just on the student side, but on the educator side and the students we served. But I really had to confront the fact that that work or that framework wasn't present in my research. And I thought that, I, I think that I thought that I wouldn't quite say things right, or that it wasn't my place to say things. And I need, I needed to unpack that and really say like, when I'm not speaking or when I'm not trying to find the words, um, who who's who needs 
to say that? Who needs to, who, who, what am I, what am I doing to my colleagues of color um, within the consultation space? And so kind of with that frame, we collaboratively worked on this paper where we kind of thought about consultation, a practice, a bedrock of my research and practice, um, and kind of thought about the assumptions embedded within consultation and how those those kind of realities or the ways that it was being taught or practiced within the kind of traditional problem solving consultation, definitely not all spaces, but within kind of the traditional practice guides, how was that perpetuating white supremacy? Where were there places that we could better unpack the practice and where did consultation need to grow? Um, and so that's the framework that we brought to this piece. And, and we worked really um, we tried to work really di- diligently and responsively to share some thoughts and hope that it would be the opening door for conversations like this one. It's so inspiring to hear you kind of speak about bringing kind of the disparate lens into research. And like, I guess I found it really powerful when you said, you know, if I'm not saying anything, who am I leaving it to say? Yeah, yeah, that was that was very powerful. I really loved reading your paper. <laughs> I think I've read. I think I've read it twice now. It's a long paper, but it's definitely worth it. And I quite liked kind of some of the things you spoke about in terms of like discursive power and like what you were just saying now in terms of how consultation can have um, the ability to perpetuate like a na- specific narratives. And I was wondering if you might just say a little bit more about discursive power and consultation. Sure, absolutely. So, so when we think about consultation, we traditionally think about it being a very efficient practice, but an efficient practice that uh, ideally has system-wide ramifications, like the teacher is learning skills that they can bring to bear in other contexts. And when we were thinking about it, when we're thinking about the role of the teacher, who's often the consultee, as the one who shares the student challenges, who kind of reaches out for consultation, who is able to kind of set a framework for what expected behavior or expected performance looks like, we really saw that kind of that role as having a lot of kind of gatekeeping power. And I think ideally, we can kind of expect folks to nominate the students with the greatest needs and to and to be really thoughtful about that. But the reality is, and I think that this is the hard part in that we don't, we don't love connecting with the reality of racism, right? The realities of um, how ability is understood. And when we look at the reality, we do know that bias is present in as individuals, as teachers, and we really need to unpack and ask ourselves, you know, is this an appropriate role? And if we have kind of the consultee as the person setting the expectations, as the person nominating the students, what are the implications of that? So we've had a few cases where in research in practice, where you'll come into a classroom where a teacher has raised a concern about a certain student, and maybe it's a student of color. And you go into the classroom, you can't really find out which is the student that the the teacher is so concerned about. More, lots of students aren't following directions. Um, Or, you know, that student looks pretty typical and you have to kind of unpack that. And I think that that being my clinical experience and also kind of seeing the data around, you know, 
who gets, you know, whose behaviors are reported more intensely or often. And kind of then thinking about the, the gatekeeping role that our consultees often have, you know, I don't quite know the answer about what we're, we're going to do, but I think that there are concerns that we as consultation instructors and researchers need to unpack. It's making me think about the importance of having or trying to preserve some element of the community-based function of educational psychology in this country. I think that that idea of whose narrative gets picked up and who decides which children can be seen and who or even prioritizing which children can be seen and who constructs the story and who's present when the story is told and how many stories are permitted feels a really important thing to kind of pick up on. And and that imbalance, however much we might try to pretend, there isn't a, a kind of a difference. There's status and hierarchy differences, even just in terms of territory. Where do you meet? If it's a parent or carer having to come into a a school, for example, to meet with the school staff and with the psychologist for a consultation, that may well convey, however unintended it might be, some quite quite clear messages about who has control and who gets to decide and and things that we need to be kind of quite conscious of. One thing I, I mean, I have to say genuinely that paper was phenomenal and I can't recommend it highly enough. I think it just needs to be read and thought about and used as a stimulus for further change uh, in lots of places. One thing I found um, is this idea of actually naming advancing equity as a foundational goal of consultation. Because I think the kind of generic ideas have always been, you know, help the consultee to help the client and then hopefully empower the consultee so that they can help other clients in the future. I think there's something so significant about saying, actually, there is a third goal, which is to advance equity. And that's what consultation is for. I think it opens up the idea that it can be talked about, it can be attended to, it can be measured, and it can be seen as kind of we're succeeding or and we're succeeding even more. Indeed, there are issues around our successes if we aren't advancing equity through consultation. And yeah, I was just interested in how, yeah, how did it feel to kind of really put it out there to say actually those two generic or core goals, foundational goals of consultation, actually there may have been something missing? Well, I, I, I really, I appreciate your thinking about it because I think you're right that it has been maybe implicit that like, of course we're helping, like we're helping kids. We're doing so in an efficient manner to help systems. Like, of course, equity is a part of that. Um, but I think that when, you know, when we don't have our expectations clear and direct towards the, those pieces get lost, right? And I think there's that's been something, a pattern I've seen within the consultation literature is that there's a lot of kind of best practices that kind of go unpacked, like go un, unarticulated, right? So when we talk about what kind of assessment looks like within that um, baseline phase, you know, we were really good at talking about what kid, you know, kid data we need to collect, but maybe less so about, well, what does the classroom look like? What does the classroom environment look like? What are the positive to negative ratios? Who is getting called out? And and really understanding what does the system look like for the student's success? And so I think that we need to look at what parts we've been kind of describing as critical, what parts we've cared enough to articulate in really specific terms and what parts are kind of important but 
not clear and work to make those parts of consultation really explicit. And so that we can give space to them and kind of hold them as expectations for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that a lot of what this what we try to do is highlight what things are we doing when we're kind of encountering a situation where we see bias in the referral or how, how, how are we trying to unpack that and how can we make that clear and plain and a part of the broad expectation. Mm-hmm. I will also say that our colleagues of color within consultation has, have been doing this work um, at the systems level, around cultural practices, a lot of what we talk about in this article was like pulling together and unpacking work, you know, really important work that has been done and kind of marginalized within mm-hmm. the broader consultation work. And so, you know, our hope was to really highlight and centralize this work and try to make that work that had been siloed centrally best practice or describe them more kind of explicitly as standard best practice rather than something you do in particular situations or mm. if you care to read those other literatures. Yeah. It's making me think of that other sort of, it's just another manifestation of inequity, isn't it? That, you know, is it because white people are saying something that that now makes it sort of important? Totally. And what has gone on to, you know, you mentioned silos, but what, instead of saying the person is in a, is like how the silo built up around them, and kind of trying to take a, a more systems level accountability, but within that kind of an individual accountability as a practitioner. And I think that link to this idea of the kind of culture of nice, niceness and, and white women and how challenging and difficult it may be to say something authentic that, that maybe is perceived to be challenging or difficult. But indeed, the fragility around having issues pointed out and, and, and yeah, just that feeling of not reading the work that you describe in your paper. It's like needing to make sure that you don't just focus on one bit. You've got to try and use quite a lot of different knowledge bases, understandings, kind of skill sets in unison and, and not enough because I even there we were talking about uh, you know talking about the foundational goal being to advance equity you're already touching on the idea of well actually there could be quite toxic systems around individuals and it's not really the individual per se but the system they found themselves in and I think it does speak to that point about kind of in terms of initial training anyway how much are we genuinely training people in terms of assessment to assess systems as well as to be able to assess individuals in a context. Exactly. Exactly. Um, There's a lot that we can do. Like if systems, if systems are the focus of our work, right? If in ways, like what are we giving folks the tools to do that work within their consultation? So I think that practically that can look like making sure that as you're training students to go do baseline data collection, that they're leaving with, um, classroom management checklists where they're leaving with things like um, cultural competence and cultural responsiveness checklists, what that they're taking um, a sense of kind of looking at the curriculum, right? Mm-hmm. So we know in the States, most children are not being exposed at tier one to effective reading instruction. And so when we kind of years later are supporting that one student who's struggling with reading, like, who are those students who are not getting the support, right? Who kind of maybe were just 
being okay with a mediocre performance, right? Like who, so kind of making sure that we are pushing back on kind of that kind of intra-individual support when system support um, really makes database sense, right? Given the, the challenges we know in instruction, we know classroom management and those positives to negatives you know, there aren't, they aren't where we would like them to be. So we, we want to kind of continue to focus on the systems level. Charles Barrett, who's a school psychologist um, and speaks widely around social justice. He has a few kind of phrases that uh, ring in my head. Um, And one thing is kind of keep the main thing, the main thing. And he talks about kind of not being distracted by an individual student and they're kind of inter-individual when the system or the instruction they're being exposed to is, is the reason that we have that challenge and that we want to make sure that we are kind of putting our, our um, material power to address the system and not just mm-hmm. kind of that individual student who's happened mm-hmm. to, to be on our radar. Mm-hmm. I suppose in terms of taking on some of those messages and actually applying them to practice. Like, I was just wondering about whether, yeah, you've had any thoughts or ideas about some of the challenges that either consultants in training, early career practitioners, or indeed quite experienced practitioners may have in taking on board some of the messages from, from that paper. Yeah, absolutely. We are certainly not naive about what we're raising, right? So things like efficiency or, you know, these students, you know, do, you know, I, I understand that most school psychologists aren't doing as much consultation as they would like. I, I know that as a school psychology faculty member, it can be challenging to teach all the things that I want students to know within the short time that I have them. I think that there isn't a short answer. And I, I think that we just need to kind of pick off like what is the thing I can do this next month or this next academic Mm -hmm. year and then what will I add to it the following year right like Mm -hmm. how can I be specific about behavioral goals so for me teaching consultation the things some of the things that I've done are things like making sure we have explicit lessons about the importance of building trust and not expecting trust um, from um, things like how to engage in cultural adaptations and making that just like a typical part of the PA, how I talk about the um, needs analysis interview, Um, making sure that they're taking data collection at the classroom level, even Mm -hmm. if they're looking at the system, at the individual student. So those are just very small things. Like those are not going to change everything for sure, but I think it shifts what they're being oriented to as typical as typical consultation. And I think that kind of continuing to push that along Mm -hmm. and leaving them with a sense of cultural humility and a sense of equity being at the center, like Mm -hmm. that is not everything, but it's something. And it's, I think it can be painful. Um, Yeah, Yeah, no, for sure. I I am, I mean, in some respects thinking that, you know, there is a responsibility for those of us who have been around a little bit. But there is a responsibility that we have to, to try and create a slightly different context for people like you, Zara, who are coming into the profession 
and you yourself kind of looking back to see who's coming up behind you and all of the work that you were doing to try and kind of encourage and cajole and force and persuade and lead on a cultural change within the profession that I think that point about, because it was making me think, Mel, about who gets published and whose work gets promoted and who do you get to read about and where some of these messages have been shared ad infinitum for years and how neglected they can be. I, you know, It just feels really important not to think that any one way is going to be the way through, but recognising there's probably going to need to be multiple different ways of moving. Um, one thing I was interested in, Zara, I don't know, when you read Mel's paper about this idea about the sort of um, disabled people's movement and that saying of nothing about us without us and how significant and important that is. And Mel, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but but here for, for some years now, the psychologist's role goes up to the age of 25. We now have a, a legal responsibility to work with young people and adults up to the age of 25. And I guess perennially that kind of question of what is the role of what we might call the client or service user in consultation. I think your paper addresses this idea of a bunch of adults sitting in a room trying to make, well, what we would hope was was good decisions is maybe something we also need to look at about the sort of position of, I'm thinking particularly older young people, but you could argue it, it would be relevant at any developmental stage is this idea of how might consultation need to develop if you're going to account for and really centre the voices of, of service users and not just parents, carers and families, but actually the, the voice of the young person. Yeah, I was just wondering if you would touch a little bit on, yeah, some of the thinking behind what you shared in the paper in, in relation to that area particularly. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think that the idea of consultation not being a direct, you know, a direct service vehicle is a part of what makes it, you know, efficient and potentially, um, you know, focused on the teacher. We can impact kind of beyond an individual student. But I think you're, you know, as you're saying, when we were reading and thinking and really digging in, in, we really questioned this perspective. Um, and I think, you know, I'm we're still unpacking what that means for consultation because, you know, in all situations, is that possible? What what do those conversations look like? But I think that we as scholars need to directly think about and unpack this issue because I think that as you said, right, students have been sharing with us, particularly autistic students in the U.S., sharing their experience of quote-unquote care and how kind of what what was taken from them in the name of kind of helping them. And I think that, again, we don't want to confront the reality that our help might not be kind of perceived as helpful or can be kind of problematic in many ways, but that is truth. And so we um, we do need to figure out how, as a field, that we can kind of be reaching out for the perspectives of clients, that we can be incorporating their perspectives on a more continual basis, 
that we can understand what their goals for their lives and um, and their kind of growth is, right? And again, when I say this, it sounds so obvious, right? Of course, we want to know, you know, of course, aligning what we're doing with what the student cares about, you know, makes sense for the success of our practice, makes sense for it being meaningful. But I, again, that just has not been how we've operationalized it. And I think that we do kind of owe it to our clients to unpack that and figure out how we can you know balance the reality of this but also you know center them as the people who are you know who might be kind of the most you know who who are the people that we are there to help um ostensibly so um making sure that they 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 appreciate the help that the help is aligned with their goals um, can be really important when I have taken the time to connect with consultees. I have always shifted my plans because of the conversations. Um, their students are very insightful about their own experiences. And I think that, again, within schools, we have a tendency to have like a top down approach that doesn't always expect that students can or will be insightful about their own experience. And I think we need to push back on that. Or entitled to. Um, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of cultural ideas about um, independence and autonomy and decision-making and who gets to be, and that ideas around control and the fears that, you know, if behavior isn't controlled and managed somehow, you know, would be like some sort of chaotic scenario. But it, I mean, I think there's so much in us and, and so much in what you've shared already, Mel. Is there anything else that you'd add as a kind of, I mean, obviously I'm saying, I think everyone should should read us, but if there was one thing you wanted people to, to take away or an application, I mean, you've, I think, been, really helpful in saying actually it's not about you know easy answers or short answers or you know this was an issue therefore do this so I can really hear that idea about needing to kind of unpack a little bit more take time to reflect engage listen you know talk to people but more importantly hear what they have to say is there anything else that you would you would really want people to to do as a result of reading your paper. Thank you. You've been so generous. Um, and I think that I would encourage folks to read the reference list. <laughs> Just I really think that we try to be really thoughtful in, you know, pulling to and highlighting resources that came before us. Whenever I read stuff from the 80s or the 90s or co- my colleagues of color who have been siloed. I am really um, grateful and I learn a lot from other people and their thinking and their um, yeah. reflections. And so I think that my suggestion would be to read some of the folks that we cited yeah. um, in addition or in, maybe instead of um, our paper, because I think that what everyone's next step will be in thinking about this work will be different. And I think yeah. what we can kind of push towards as a field, I don't think we know yet, but it will be exciting to get the perspectives of others and and have kind of all of us central centralize this work. So 
I'm looking forward to reading other folks. And I always look forward to reading other folks' perspective on this work. Um, and so I'm kind of excited to, to continue to read and to continue mm. to reflect. Um, and I hope that that is something that others will do as well. Mm, for sure. So before we move into the, the last question, I'm asking um, Mel for her. It's really hard, your Desert Island reading list or something that really, you know, um, so it's like to pick one. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to ask Mel or, or mention before we move into the last part? There are loads of things I would really need to ask and reflect more about the paper, but I am very mindful of the time. Um, so I am issue with the last question. Maybe Mel might come back um, yeah. after a period of time. <laughs> okay, so Mel, do you have one book, article or chapter that you read that has changed your thinking so that I knew this question was coming <laughs> um, <laughs> and I mean there are so many articles that have just reshaped how I think about things so I'm gonna tell you more than one but I think Marquetta Newell's work on problem-solving consultation and the competencies I, I really she had a recent ch chapter in 2020 that I've used as a framework for how I'm teaching and organizing my class that has been really, really um, lovely and profound um, and important. Um, I really, Sadness and Proctor wrote a paper on um, discrete and school psychology that has really continually pushed my thinking. Liz McKenney wrote that paper about white women's socialization within school psychology that I go back to and kind of use to reflect and push myself and think differently. But there are so there, there are so many good works. I mentioned Charles Barrett, who has done a podcast on um, the school psychology podcast, which has been so one that I kind of assigned to all my first classes, because I think it's a really important kind of framework for um, starting class together. But there's there's just so much. I think that um, I think if I'm on a desert island, I'm like bringing a like a bookshelf. But also, you know, also I would encourage folks to think outside of reading. So some of the things, like some of the podcasts I've listened to about education or about about racism in the U.S. have really shaped what I bring towards the field. So I guess that would be my last point. Is like read read and listen and watch outside of the academic realm and then bring it in um and so it's okay if you're watching fun shows uh, and just bring it into bring it into um this space awesome thank you so much you've definitely added to my reading list for this year um thank you so much mel 